Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The podcast will begin after this message. Today's episode is presented by Tetra Pak. Let's make the single-use plastics directive implementable. To secure a global shift in design and manufacturing that matches ambitious environmental, consumer safety, and ethical sourcing principles, Tetra Pak is asking for measures on on-pack straws and caps under the SUP directive to enter into force from 2025 instead of 2021. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week, my head is swirling. But hey, what's new? Isn't that how every episode of EU Confidential starts these days? Before we get on to this week's interview guests, the three Green politicians competing to be one of their party's two nominees for European Commission president, I'm afraid we have to talk about Brexit. An already endless Brexit is exploding in disturbing ways. Gibraltar has gone from a settled issue to that of a time bomb. France and Germany might be on different pages. The UK is, if anything, more hopelessly divided than ever, which, ironically, means Theresa May is safe in her job for now. The next big question is whether the Brexit revolutionaries are blowing up their revolution by pushing too hard on the terms of the Brexit deal. This is where an official opposition might pounce, except the UK Labour Party doesn't have a clear position, and former heavyweights like David Miliband say they won't be stepping in to create a rival party. This weekend's summit and subsequent parliament debates are going to be so much fun. Not. It's no better on the Italian budget front. The European Commission has begun its penalty process against Italy for not doing more to bring down its debt level. The Commission vice president in charge of it all, Valdis Dombrovskis, said Italy is, quote, sleepwalking into instability. Well, plenty of people accuse the Commission of the exact same thing. In fact, the Spanish Foreign Minister Josep Borrell told me the EU would be making a fatal mistake to treat Italy as it had treated Greece. On a personal level, I woke up Wednesday thinking it would be a quiet day. Instead, I was whisked on stage to moderate a 90-minute philosophical debate about the essence of democracy and tyranny with the most powerful artist in the world, Ai Weiwei, and the exiled Catalan leader, Carlos Puigdemont. Against the backdrop of the national narcissism of Brexit and the casual disregard of voting across the continent when it comes to the European Union election, it was a sobering conversation. What struck me most about I, Puigdemont, and other dissidents at the event, hosted by an organisation called Cinema for Peace, was the premium they place on meaningful inner thoughts and loving relationships. The perennial loneliness of being a dissident felt very real indeed. So if you're one of the non-dissidents out there, don't be lonely. And don't be apathetic. Stick with us, and somehow we'll muddle through this messy world. 
Next up is Scar Keller, a German member of the European Parliament and the first of three Green Party candidates for European Commission President that we'll hear from in this episode. We're hearing from them now because on November 24, the Greens will gather in Berlin to choose two of these three guests to be their Commission co-candidates. Why two? Well, the Greens love to break the mould and do things equally. And there's no rules stopping them. In fact, there's virtually no rules at all in the EU system for choosing a Commission President. But back to Keller. She was one of the Greens candidates in 2014, and she's back for more in 2019. So let's start with the easy question, Scar. Tell us, why should Greens choose you to be their co-candidate for European Commission President? I think the other ones are really good candidates as well. So what I have to offer is a long, long experience in the Green and European political arena. I have been uh, running already once as lead candidates. I know all of our member parties. I know the tricky issues. I know sensitive issues around and I've been visiting all our local uh, member parties. I've been helping a lot uh, in their various election campaigns. So I think this is something that I really can bring into the European campaign. So obviously, Greens are critical of some of the things that the EU is doing. Tell us, what do you think the current European Commission is doing wrong to the extent that it would uh, push people to vote Green? I think now is time to vote Greens because these European elections are going to be a bit more existential than the previous ones. We really have to decide how we want to go further with the European Union. That is Greens, we say we do want to go further. As a European Union, together we can build a better future. And there are political forces that want to destroy the European Union, who want to go back to nationalism and uh, who want to work backwards in time. And so we need to have a very clear stance on the issue of how do we stand to the European Union. And as Greens, we're very united in that. We believe in working together. We believe that we have to overcome nationalism. And we believe that together we can build a better and brighter future. And at the same time, we want to change the European Union. We don't want to continue with the status quo like some other parties do. We do see the need for improvement, for bringing Europe closer to the citizens by, for example, finally building a social union, something that is very important but has been missing so far. We have a lot of rules on the European level for all sorts of economic factors, how much debt you can have as a member state, but we don't have rules in place for social progress. There are some very nice non-binding words on social targets, but we need to make them binding and we need to put them on the same footing as we have with our economic aims. Also, we need to make sure that as the European Union, we can defend democracy and rule of law in all member states and that this is not a nice to have, but really a fundamental value of the European Union. You can't have the benefits of the European Union without sticking to the fundamentals of the European Union, which is freedom of press, for example, freedom of assembly, independence of judiciary, good governance, freedom of corruption as well. And this is really essential. Now, can you outline a little bit what your policy priorities would be in the next EU mandate? So from 2019 to 2024. I think the key for the next mandate is threefold. On the one hand, defending the democratic and rule of law values that we have in the European Union in all member states, because all European citizens are equal and they need to be able to enjoy the same rights. 
So how to deal with the democratic deficits that are growing in some member states, and actually quite a lot of member states, I think will be key and absolutely crucial. Same thing is to build a social Europe, which makes clear that we are looking at the rights of all European citizens, that no one will be left behind. We should have minimum standards everywhere in the European Union so that no one in the European Union will be left without a minimum income, without health insurance, for example. These need to be the absolute minimums in the European Union. We need to get together and uh, also establish social targets so that the social situation for everyone will be increasing in the future because that is also a promise of the European Union. And we need to address the big challenges ahead climate change, making sure the European Union is advancing here, else we're also going to lose economically as well as ecologically. I think those are absolute key uh, for the next mandate. Right now it's very clear that German Greens are having a successful moment. They're up to even second in some of the polls in that country. You've also done very well in both regional and national elections, places like Luxembourg, Belgium. But I think that it's true also to say that the Greens are struggling overall across Europe. Tell us, why do you think that is? Actually, Greens all over Europe are doing pretty well at the moment. So in Germany, indeed, we had some very good elections, but we also had them in Belgium with the local elections and in Luxembourg, where we came out of a government responsibility and we did extremely well. We had it before in the Netherlands, but we also have polls, which of course are not elections, but we have polls in several member states that show us doing very well, for example, in Finland. But it's not just a Western or a Northern phenomenon. I really have to stress that. Also elsewhere in Europe, we're gaining ground, even in places where it's very difficult for us. Just looking at the last communal elections in Poland, for example, which is a difficult terrain for us, but we have managed to increase our visibility, to have candidates everywhere, to be really everywhere in the country, not just in the big cities. So we do see how things are progressing. Now. The Greens are unlikely to actually win the European Commission presidency. I don't want to sound tough in breaking that to you, but I'm sure you know. What is definitely the case is that Greens could be kingmakers in the next parliament. So I'd like to know how you would plan to use that power. What sort of price would you extract from Manfred Weber or whoever it is that the European Council does send to parliament for confirmation? Indeed, I think our influence as Greens uh, will increase in the next European Parliament. We, of course, have to use that responsibility very wisely and we want to use it in order to change policies at the European Union a level to make it a union of the citizens and to make sure that the European Union is indeed advancing in issues like ecology and social rights, etc., And when it comes to Commission presidency, for us it's very clear that we'll only vote for someone who has been running as a lead candidate for one of the parties. Of course, we would quite like to see a woman finally at the top position that we have in the European Union. And else we will, of course, look at the content of what the candidate has to offer. We will make sure that we are investigating the candidates that we're asking them, because in the end, it's really it comes down to the content Will the candidates deliver on an ecological, social and democratic union or won't they? And if they won't, then certainly we won't vote for them. Now, maybe let's finish with you telling listeners a little bit about who you are as a person, something they don't know about you as a person or as a politician that you want them to know. What's something that people don't know about me? Probably a lot. 
maybe something that not so many people know is that I'm from a small city in East Germany where I've learned early that uh, one needs to stand up for democratic rights and uh, against discrimination and against racism and uh, that it's not always such an easy thing to do. And I've certainly learned the life far away from the big metropoles and capitals and um, that it's important to find your way and to also learn to live your own identity. I mean, running around with brightly colored hair in a small town is certainly something where you need learn to how to stand up for yourself. You were listening to Scar Keller. Next up is Petra de Suta of Belgium. Petra, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Hello. Petra, you're from Belgium. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about who you are as a person and as a candidate, and then we can get into why people should vote for you rather than the other candidates. Well, I am um, maybe a little bit of an outsider, I would say. I started to be politically active only in 2014, and I'm 55, so I was already 50 asked by the Green Party to support them at the elections in 2014. I was on the European list. I was not selected then because I was not on an eligible place and that was to be expected. But then they offered me co-optation or nomination, if you want, in the Senate. And from the Belgian Senate, I had the chance to be active in the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, so at the European level after all. My background is um, I'm a gynecologist, a medical doctor, and I'm a professor at Ghent University. My specialty is reproductive medicine, so fertility and fertility. And I've always been interested, or I would say even a little bit angry, about the effects of the environment on our health. As a doctor, I see a lot of problems with my patients in fertility that are absolutely correlated to environmental issues like endocrine disruptors, and other uh, stuff, pesticides and so on. So maybe we'll talk about that later. But that actually was the start of my, I would say, ecological conscience. Tell us a little bit about why Green Party members and supporters should be voting for you in this election. Well, it's up to, uh, to themselves to decide, but I'll give maybe some arguments that could inspire people. First of all, I'm a scientist, which brings an interesting aspect into ecological politics because as you know we're very critical towards science and it's good to know the language to understand what scientists are talking about to be able to make the distinction between lobbying and scientific uh, arguments specifically at the eu level again if you talk about endocrine disruptor disrupting chemicals or pesticides, or novel foods, nanotechnology, GMOs, and so on. These things are really at the core of my uh, political interest uh, at the EU level. I'm a gynecologist, and maybe that's something to add. Gynecologists are problem solvers. They have to make quick decisions. You know, in the middle of the night, in 30 seconds time, you have to decide about doing a C-section or not and saving the life of somebody, which means you have to stay calm and uh, solve the problem as it is. I also need to say that I have a an interesting maybe personal story. I'm a trans woman. I transitioned when I was 40. And that means that, you know, I look at life and life issues probably with a a bit of a different view than many other people. I'm a survivor. Some others do not survive this kind of issues. I'm a survivor. I'm a fighter. And that means that if I want to go for something, I'm really a hardworking and motivated person for this. So I'm not a conventional 
candidates coming out of the Brussels bubble, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. I have an outside view. But on the other hand, I know about European politics because I've been working now for almost five years in the Council of Europe at the Parliamentary Assembly, where I do a lot of work. Most of my political work is being done at that level, working on human rights, democracy, rule of law. And 10 years ago, we would all have thought that was something that we could take for granted. And now everybody realizes that we have to defend and protect these values. And where we know that endocrine disruptors are really very, very dangerous products, which are in our environment, our food, we breathe them, we drink them in, in drinking water and so on. And they affect our health, they are carcinogenic, they give allergies, they affect the immune system and the fertility and, and sexual development of, of individuals. So these are actually the reasons why I think I could have an interesting profile. Thinking about what the European Commission is doing specifically these days, are there particular things that you'd prioritize to change? You know, what, what, what is the EU doing wrong that you would change if you were in charge of the European Commission? Well, one of the, the major priorities would be climate change and going towards an energy union, being sure that we are independent from some other countries that don't always have regimes that we really like. Uh, we have to go to a fossil-free economy and go for renewable energies. I think that would be my number one priority. If you look at how the Commission works, and not saying that everything they do is wrong, of course not, but they need much more coherence and I would say vision and ambition. These would be three important words for me, coherence between some of their policies in the, the trade and the foreign affairs department that are not coherent with everything that has to do with migration, with development, being compliant to the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. There is no plan, there's no vision, there is no coherence in what they're doing. And there's way too much of what I would call silo or silo thinking. One of the, the major subjects that the Greens are focusing on is, of course, food security, food supply and agriculture. And you know, these things are, are not synchronized. There should be one common food policy for the EU. But when I use the word values, I'm not talking about the traditional Christian European values that uh, also Mr. Putin likes to defend and, and his uh, colleagues like Mr. Orban or, or the, the, the Polish leaders and so on. I'm talking about uh, enlightenment values, the values of freedom, of human rights, we have really to put that very high on our agenda. And it's certainly true that in countries like Germany, for example, where Greens are now involved in governing in half of the states, that we're definitely seeing more Greens taking on that responsibility of, of being in government. If we're realistic, though, about the situation with the European Commission, probably the Greens won't hold the European Commission presidency next year. So I guess my final question to you is, how will you continue to contribute at that EU level if the Greens don't get the top job or if you aren't selected to be the Green candidate? Yes, you never know what happens, of course, to start uh, answering that question. Where the Greens are governing, and allow me to talk a little bit about the city that I know best in Belgium, which is Ghent, where I yeah, work at the university. Good. You know, the Greens have been governing there for quite a few years now. They have a very successful mobility plan or circulation plan or traffic plan, whatever you want to call it, that is successful, that has been criticized. But everybody now agrees that this was really a great move forward, which was not easy, but they did it. And so we are convincing more and more people and not only the young, female, highly educated urban population. And let me tell you that at the local elections in my own city, which or town, small town, actually, 
in a very rural environment, we went from zero to 21.7%. We will, if we need to stay in the opposition, continue to be relevant and maybe influence uh, the political agenda even above our own political weights. If you look at the last meeting of the ministers of transport and environment in Grasse, and you read what they agreed, it could have been taken out of any green political program. Maybe to end with a, a bit of a slogan, but Greens always have been looking for dialogue when it's possible, but they, uh, they are also activists if it's necessary. That would be my uh, political agenda if we would not be able to have the presidency of the Commission. Petra de Suda, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Petra de Suta. My interview with Baz Eichout of the Netherlands will begin after this message. A message from Tetra Pak. To make sure we can meet the objectives of the Single-Use Plastics Directive, the timelines for implementation need to be realistic. Tetra Pak is investing in alternative solutions to SUP with new design and manufacturing machinery, matching ambitious environmental, consumer safety and ethical sourcing principles. To operate this shift globally, we are asking for measures on unpacked straws and caps to enter into force from 2025 instead of 2021. Let's make the SUP directive implementable. Next up is Baz Eikart, a Green MEP from the Netherlands. Welcome to EU Confidential, Baz. Why should Green members choose you as their co-candidate? I think what my strongest asset is, is of course that I've been working in the parliament for almost 10 years now. So I do know all the European issues and also important, I know the nonsense that sometimes the other parties are telling, for example, on climate change. If you listen to politicians now, you have the feeling everyone finds it important and crucial. But if you then look how they really vote, what they really do on politics on the ground, it's quite often quite disappointing. And I think I I bring that experience that I can cut the nonsense from the real attempts to do something about it. My other strong asset is, of course, that I have been working on climate change, a crucial issue for the European Greens. For those 10 years, I'm the spokesperson for climate change and energy for the Green Group in the European Parliament. I studied chemistry, so I tend to know a bit about the topic, so that's also important. And I think the last one is I've been... uh, this is now for the second time I'm head of list of the Dutch Greens and I've done campaigning before and until now the Dutch Greens are quite successful. So I think that is also something that I can bring with me. That's actually bringing us to the next interesting question. The Dutch Greens are having a successful moment. I'd say that's true of the German Greens as well and a few others around Europe. We saw that in the recent regional and national elections. But then we've got polls in other countries that show that Greens are also struggling in large parts of Europe, and it might not be an overall surge. Why do you think there is that uneven record? I think it has mainly to do with uh, the history of the Green groups, of course. I think the countries where they are successful now, like also Belgium, I think it's where the Greens have been around for many decades and have materialized on many topics, and that's, of course, not in every country, certainly not in Central Europe. It's still struggling, of course, there. But what you do see is maybe not necessarily a core green party on the, having the same levels of support as you see in some of the countries in the Northwest. But you do see a rise of a stream of political parties that's a bit fed up with the debate as if you only have two options, right? Mm-hmm. You have the center parties and then you have the populists who want to destroy things. So 
What is important is in all those countries you do see a rise of parties who say we are different. And certainly also from, from a European perspective, we are very pro-European, but at the same time, we do see that things need to change. You see that in Spain. And look there, the Spanish Greens work very well with Podemos, so they do that together. But if you go to a country like Romania, you do see that there is more and more a civil unrest, a civil unhappiness with the center parties. And you see also new parties rising, which might not be the direct green brand that you see in Germany or the Netherlands, but having the same message. I wanted to ask you, what is the current commission doing wrong? And why should people turn to the Greens for the answers rather than, say, one of those populist parties? I think the biggest problem is really on uh, well, what people call social Europe, right? I think Europe really needs to change economically in its DNA. And I think one clear example is on taxation. And that is now ongoing for decades, is that we built an internal market, very successful, very good. So good for companies because they can deliver their goods all over Europe with the same uh, rules. Then on top of that, we created one market for employees. So again, the companies can choose where the cheapest employees are so they can play against each other. And then on top of that, taxation is still national. So they can shop their taxes through tax evasion, but also just through the formal tax levels that are going down year after year. Companies are paying less and less taxes with the consequence that governments are struggling to find their incomes, where is the income coming from? So what do they do? They cut their expenditure. And the biggest expenditures of governments is, of course, social care, so health, education. And that's what people see. They feel they are uncertain about the cost of health. They don't know whether they will have a job tomorrow, whether their kids will have a good education. We've just talked about two very serious issues, the tax base and climate at the beginning. Would you be able to nominate any other policy priorities for that next five-year window if you got one of the top jobs? Yeah, so, so well, those are the two. Clearly, I think a third one is also a trade agenda. Our trade is more and more a huge important topic if you look also at the international developments. And I think if you look at the trade agenda of Europe, also there you see that trade has become a target in itself, a goal in itself just having a trade deal for a trade deal. If that is your assessment of trade deals, then of course any environmental or social policy is a kind of a stumbling block towards trade. And that's exactly how in trade negotiations, social and environmental policies are being treated. That is something that really needs to change. If we want to be credible, then also our trade agenda should be having at the heart social and environmental policies in a very simple way The trade agenda should deliver on the sustainable development goals that we internationally develop. Trade agenda until now for Europe is a pure economic agenda and not a social and environmental agenda. And if I would be the new head of the commission, that change of how we look at trade is is going to be fundamental. And now if we look realistically at the Greens' chances, we'd probably have to say that it's a, a long shot for the Greens to take the commission presidency. Well, I don't rule anything out. We're here to have a level playing field election. But what I would say at this point is you could be very likely kingmakers in the next parliament. So you might not be able to get the top job yourself, but you might be able to extract a price and a series of policy concessions from Manfred Weber or another candidate who was being put forward by the council in order for them to have a majority in parliament. 
So I was wondering how you might plan to use that power if you find yourself in that balance of power role. You're right, of course. I mean, I'm not blind for what we expect is that the Christian Democrats, although they will lose, they will probably still maintain uh, their, their highest score and be the biggest force in the European Parliament. But to be very clear to them, that doesn't mean that just like that they will also get the top job. It means that they will have the first take in creating a majority. And here is really a very clear message for Manfred Weber. If I look at the Christian Democrats for now, they are more and more looking to their right side. You saw it in the Bavarian elections where the CSU was obsessed with AfD. You see it in Austria where they even join a government. And you see it in Hungary where they themselves turn into the populists. So you really see that the Christian Democrats are looking to their right side as if there are their allies. If that is going to be their attitude, they will not get a majority in the European Parliament and they will not get the top job. They will have to look to the progressive side of the Parliament. And indeed, we Greens, we are willing to start these negotiations, but it really needs to be a clear diversion away from how Europe is currently being governed. And that is really on the topics of climate change, it's on trade, it's on the social agenda, taxation. If the EPP wants to keep the top job in the European Parliament, they have to look to the progressive green force and they really have to be serious in changing Europe course on those topics. Otherwise, we will not vote for Manfred Weber. That's a very clear message. Uh, maybe something a little bit lighter to finish on. What's something uh, the people listening don't know about you as a person or a politician that you'd like them to know before this vote takes place? Probably what jumps to mind is my music taste, which is uh, I, every year I make a new list of, of album of the year. I'm really a great music fan. And that is if I am not doing politics and I'm at home, then the way to, to really get relaxed is, is listening to music, going to concerts. But quite often when I put my album top 15 out there every year, I get a lot of reactions like, oh my God, what a noise. It's, it's, it's quite more the alternative guitar side music. So, so you're not with Mark Rutter at the toppers or something like that? Oh, no, my God, when he's going there, I get a headache. No, 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 no. And so in that sense, my music taste might not be really center. So not everyone will appreciate it, but I do hope that people appreciate that I'm so devoted to music. And another thing where I get my uh, relaxation from is that I love to hike into the mountains. And as a Dutch, of course, I'm That's a very difficult job in the Netherlands. (laughs) It's it's the worst country to be born in if you love mountains, absolutely so. But, But... Good enough, we have quite some mountains in Europe still to visit too. But yeah, sometimes you do feel that the Netherlands then is a bit of a wrong country for mountains. And where can we find this music list? Do you put it out on your website or Spotify or platforms like that? Yeah, I put it out on my website, yeah. I might have to do it now in English from now on, but most of the artists are English-speaking. If you just uh, search for album top 15 and my name, you can see some of those here. Baz Eichhardt, thank you very much for joining us on EU Confidential. You're very welcome, and thank you, Ryan. That was Baz Eichout, the third and final Green candidate for European Commission President. Amid all the political drama of this week, we didn't manage to assemble the Brussels Brains Trust in one place at the same time. So we're skipping the panel, and we'll deliver an extra good one next week. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. It takes a great team to make a great podcast, so special thanks to Andrew Gray and Antonio Fernandez. And if you don't already receive the podcast automatically each week, you can subscribe at politico.eu 
forward slash registration or wherever you found this episode. If you sign up for the community on our website, you'll get invites to events like podcast live tapings that we're planning in 2019. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.